Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It just made me feel a bit cheesy. As I was the only girl in the world, he said all the right things to make me feel special. And within two weeks... I moved in, into his flat with him. Two weeks? He split my lip open whilst I was holding her in my arms. She was 10 months old. And that for me was the biggest wake-up call ever. The first person I made my disclosure to was actually my boss. I remember him putting his hands up in the air like, like this. He didn't want to listen and I was instantly sacked. In that situation, I took an overdose. I didn't want to live anymore again. I couldn't see a way out and I just thought it'd be easy if I wasn't here. Just about understanding that it's not your fault. That is the biggest thing. It's not your fault. It's as though I lost the ability to be human. It was just a shell of me. So when I did have my daughter and that incident happened, she did save my life because without her, I wouldn't have had a reason to leave and I would have stayed. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of Second Chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who, some might argue, don't deserve them. Our guest this week is Samantha Billingham a survivor of domestic abuse and founder of SODA, a support group to help others. Although more and more people share their stories of domestic abuse, it's not an easy thing to do. Sam was psychologically and physically controlled for years by her former partner. She left on a number of occasions, but ended up going back. In this interview, she shares how she finally found the inner strength and courage to ask for help. This decision gave her the support she needed to leave the father of her child for good. Samantha now, with the support of her daughter, campaigns to raise awareness of what so many face behind closed doors in their own homes. How are you feeling this morning, Sam? 
I'm feeling really good, nervous, but really good, really good. What are you nervous about? I think this is the part of my journey that I haven't really explored myself yet, as in the positive side of my life. Um, I haven't focused on that for a very long time, so I'm kind of excited to be doing that and then to be sharing it as well. It's just really amazing and really positive. That's so interesting, actually, and it's it's a good place to start, really, isn't it? Because why have you not been able to to be positive about your experience? Because from what I've read and from what I've heard, and as people will hear as you share your story and experience, you know, you're an advocate for people who have gone through a very challenging time in their life, in particular those who have suffered from domestic abuse, if I'm using the right term. So why has it been so difficult? It's been really difficult because for three years I was existing in a relationship with somebody who I thought loved me, but they didn't. They were very, very controlling. So the relationship I was in was extremely controlling from the point um, of where he would tie me when I went to the toilet. I wasn't allowed to use the bathroom on my own. I couldn't even be in the bath alone. He would physically get in the bath with me. The only place I was allowed to go was shopping. And that was on my own. But then I'd be bombarded with phone calls, text messages, not only from him, but from his mom as well, wanting to know where I was, who I was talking to, what I'd been saying. So for for three years, every single aspect of my life was controlled. And I had to I had to find a way to exist, but to stay safe at the same time. So whatever he wanted me to do, I would just be an autopilot and do. So, for example, When he went out, I wasn't allowed to answer the door to anybody, even if it was his brother. My friends weren't allowed to visit. My family wasn't allowed to visit. Couldn't open the door to anyone. My phone was controlled. I couldn't phone my mom. Couldn't make contact with anybody. So for a long time, coercive control and controlling behaviour became my normal. And even though I escaped that relationship, more than well, around 20 years ago it still had a huge impact on my life as like right now right right here right now it, it still has a huge impact on my life and I haven't known for a long time who Sam really is so I'm a single parent I've got the most amazing beautiful daughter who actually saved my life without her I would not be here she's doing amazing And then I set up my own support group to help other people. So for for a long time, I've put the focus on everyone else and everything else, but not Sam. So to be here with you today and to speak like this, it's new for me as well. Even though I've been out of that situation for a long time, it's it's only within the last few months that I've put the focus on, on me. Let me just roll back now, because I suppose... It's such a powerful testimony what what you're sharing with with me and and the audience. But nobody knows when they, I I, I suspect nobody knows when they first get into a relationship with someone that it's going to turn out to be, you know, like your relationship was controlling, abusive, etc. So can I just ask you to take me back to when you first met this guy that you believed was going to be the guy, which is what most guys and girls believe when they meet someone who they then build a relationship with. So just take me back to the person you thought this person was when you first met them. So I remember it 
like it was yesterday. It was a Friday night. I went to my, um, I was the legal secretary. I had an amazing job, lived at home with my parents. Life was brilliant. Uh, I was early 20s, so around 21, 22. Went to my local pub. Uh, I was on my own. Um, but I knew everyone in there. We were like one big family. So there was no no reason for me not to go in, in there on my own. And as cheesy as it sounds, I remember looking. It was really busy this particular night. And I remember looking and I just thought, wow, oh, I like him. Oh, he's really nice. And our eyes met across the crowded room. And that was that was literally it. I walked over to his table. He was sharing it with his friend. I sat down. And I now believe that is when the control started because I opened up to him like I told him where I lived. I told him where I worked. He knew I loved my job. He knew what kind of relationship I'd got with my mom. I was extremely close to my mom. Uh, and he was so charming. He had got a lovely smile. He seemed very caring, very charming. Everyone in the pub seemed to know him because everybody was coming over to us and saying hello to him. And then they'd look at me and they'd go, oh, you've got a good one here. He'll look after you. So at that particular time when we first met, there was absolutely no indication or reason for me. I didn't feel frightened. He didn't make me feel uncomfortable. There was just nothing, just, just chemistry. There was obviously something there. I liked him, he liked me. And then we, we went off to the next pub. And he just made me feel a bit cheesy. As though I was the only girl in the world, he said all the right things to make me feel special. And within two weeks, I moved in, into his flat with him. Um, two weeks? So for anyone listening, that is the biggest red flag of any abusive relationship. Relationships that move quickly like that are often dangerous. But again, in the midst of it, when everything's all new and exciting and we both liked each other, I didn't, still didn't see anything wrong with this person's behaviour because he was still very caring, very charming, didn't make me feel fear, didn't make me feel, he just made me feel loved and as though he genuinely wanted to spend time with me. Why do you say that's a red flag then? Because I'm interpreting that as most people would, that this is this kind of whirlwind romance that takes place when two people meet. Okay, the moving in with someone within two weeks seems pretty rash, but, you know, love does do meticulous and mysterious things to people. Why do you say it's a red flag that this happens so quickly? Because as I say, to most people, that will be the whirlwind of romance. That goes on for much longer than two weeks. Yeah, absolutely. My lived experience is that the biggest red flag is moving into a relationship uh, after two weeks because as soon as I moved into his flat with him, even though I still didn't know at the time, that is when the controlling behaviour came in. That's when the coercive control came into our relationship. And because I didn't know this person, I didn't know him well enough. And I'd got nothing to base this relationship on. This was my very first serious relationship. I'd never left home before. I'd never kind of been this serious with anyone before. So I got nothing to base it on. And the controlling behaviour almost started immediately. So it started off with him saying, Oh, don't go and see your mum tonight. If you love me, you won't go and see your mum. And again, it's that we want to spend all our time together. We, we want to be, you know, in each other's company. So again, I didn't see anything wrong with this. But looking back now, I'd already told him 
when I first met him that my relationship was, with my mom was very strong. She was more like my sister than my mom. Um, and the, the very first person that he isolated me from was my mom. And I believe this to be because she would have noticed that there was a change in my behaviour, in my personality, and she would have probably encouraged me not to see this person or she would have spoke out a lot sooner than, than she did. And then very quickly on in the relationship, he isolated me from work. So I loved my job. My job gave me a sense of direction, a sense of purpose and belonging. I made money from it. And he always said to me, the only way you could have got your job was by sleeping with your boss. He said, because you're too young to get a job as a legal secretary. And again, I just thought it was a bit odd for him to say, but I didn't read too much into what he was saying because it didn't really make sense. Until one morning, he locked me in the flat that we shared together and threw my mobile phone out the seventh floor window so I couldn't get to work. I couldn't make a phone call to work. And then I was locked in the, the flat because, again, he was taking me away from the things that I loved and the thing that gave me my independence. So without money and without my job, losing my job was the hardest thing for me, really, because that gave me everything. That gave me, you know... I got a sense of purpose, I got a sense of belonging, I was doing really well. And then he took all that away within a very, very short space of time. And that was purely so he could control me and manipulate me 24-7. During this kind of manipulation and control period where he isolated you both from your mother and from your work, as an independent woman who up until this point had you know done everything for herself because as you say you had not been in a long-term relationship or a serious relationship so you made a lot of decisions for yourself why did you find yourself in a situation where he was controlling who you saw when you saw and what you did and not react to it what what was the weakness I say weakness in you because I can't think of another word to use but what was that in you that allowed these things to happen instead of you sort of stamping your foot and saying, no, I'm going to see my mum, my mum's my mum, or no, you're not going to control my work. Was he physically making it difficult for you or is this all part of the control? So at the beginning, it was all control. And the, the biggest thing that was stopping me was I loved him. And I know that sounds really lame when I say it out loud now, and I've said this many times, but I genuinely love this person. I would have done anything for him. His control still made it feel as though he cared for me and loved me. There was no shouting. He wasn't angry. It was things like when I, I went out with a girlfriend to a pub, which was literally 10 minutes away. My, from no sooner I got in there, my phone was constant. And he would say, I can't believe you've left me on my own. Come back home. I miss you. So even though it is controlled, the way they portray it to their partner or their victim makes it feel like, oh, he wants to spend time with me. I'll, I'll go back home. But then when I went back home, I'm showing him that he's got that control over me because I've done exactly what he wanted me to do. And then I never went out again because it was always easier to stay at home because I'd be bombarded with questions. I was called nasty names for what a wall he would smell my underwear when I got back home because he thought I was cheating on him and sleeping with other men so for me it was just easier and safer for me to stay at home to not go out to not go and see my mom to not go to work because when I did those things there was always consequences that I would have to pay and those consequences would often be physical so it was just easier and safer for me to stay at home 
And I suppose the big question, until you start mentioning that he'd sniff your underwear or he would do these absurd things, is where's the line, you know, for people to become aware and for people to understand where the line is between the messages of sort of saying, I miss you, please come home, which is something that probably happens in relationship up and down the world, to the line where he was doing it because he was controlling and he knew that he needed to pull on your emotions. And because you loved him, you didn't recognize. How do people, or what have you learned, Sam, that made you recognize the difference between it being genuine, I miss you, come home, you, you, you know, and controlling, deliberate controlling? So I didn't really know it was controlling it until I left. And I know that sounds really bizarre. And I know people are probably saying, how could you not know? But that, that controlling became my normal. I didn't I didn't know any different. I didn't have anyone to confide in. I didn't have a girlfriend to say, oh, you know, he's done this. Does that happen in your relationship? So I accepted and tolerated that behaviour as normal. And when I did notice that things weren't right, so for example, he would maybe stay awake all night. He killed um, his own pet bird because I went to bed without him. That was my form of punishment for going to bed without him. When I was in that deep, I couldn't just leave. I couldn't. I couldn't go anywhere because I'd left so many times before, and he'd always find me. I went to a safe house, and he found me. And then it'd be, but you know, I love you. I won't hurt you again. I promise it won't happen again. And for a few weeks when I did go home, it didn't happen. There was no violence and there was no controlling. But then once I'd been back home a few weeks, it would become normal behaviour again. So there was that constant cycle and that pattern of behaviour that became more normal. And at the beginning, I said my daughter saved my life. She literally did save my life. I had a baby with a perpetrator because I foolishly believed that he would change being a father you know it would kind of bring us together in a more positive way it didn't he split my lip open whilst I was holding her in my arms she was 10 months old and that for me was the biggest wake-up call ever because that could have gone the other way it could have hurt her and then I would have had that old guilt feeling and that literally was when I ended the relationship I knew I had to I had to get out of it for her sake so again, at the beginning, when I was talking about my journey, again, my focus was obviously on the safety of my daughter. And something my dad said to me was, but why couldn't you do that for yourself? But when you're with a, a perpetrator, you're, you're nobody. You're a shell of who you were. You're just nobody. I've got to do whatever he wants me to do to stay safe. I don't know my own mind. I can't make decisions anymore. I don't even know how to have a conversation with somebody. I don't even know how to look at a person you know, when you're in that situation, I can't make eye contact with anyone because whether it was male or female, I'd be accused of having an affair with that person. So it's as though I lost the ability to be human. It was just a shell of me. So when I did have my daughter and that incident happened, she did save my life because without her, I wouldn't have had a reason to leave and I would have stayed. I would have stayed in that relationship without her. And that is really scary and really sad actually saying that out loud because I was a person in that relationship, even though I'd been psychologically and, and physically beaten, I was still a human being, but he made me feel absolutely worthless and, and just a terrible person because no matter what I did or what I said was wrong, 
goalposts was moved all the time. So my day would be, I'd get up, I'd literally get out of bed and clean. I'd clean because he liked that. He liked women who would clean, who'd cook for him, who'd kind of put his needs before anybody else's. And that's exactly what I did. And it's taken a long time to get that focus. I don't need to do that anymore. That focus can go on me. But when you've been mentally drained and psychologically abused over a period of time, I've got to learn to unprogram and unpick all that behaviour and say, well, actually, I'm Sam Billingham and I can do whatever I want. If I want to go out, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, I don't have to be home for a certain time. But when my life was completely controlled where I did have to be back at a certain time it's still a part of your life and it still has a huge impact on the, on the person that you, you are. You, you went through all this the psychological and the physical you talk about the moment where he hit you when you had your daughter in your arms and that was a wake-up call and you talked earlier on about your your mum being isolated your work colleagues being isolated and, and people often talk about domestic violence, domestic abuse takes place inside the home where no one sees. W was anyone, I mean, you were suffering this, but was anyone else aware? I mean, had your mother, you mentioned your father earlier on, but had your mother and your father or, or other relatives, friends, even though you were isolated from them, had they become aware I mean, they've obviously become aware that you changed. and But, you know, when people are in relationships, the dynamics of relationships with other people change because you spend more time with the person that you're in love with or you're sharing your relationship. And when you've got a child, you know, so people tend to give you space so that you can... But were people aware, Sam, of what was going on behind the door? Absolutely. So the first person I actually made or tried to make a disclosure to, and I say the word tried because... I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't really have a clue what was happening. But when he locked me in the flat, that obviously wasn't right. And the first person I made my disclosure to was actually my boss. And his reaction and his response was, I remember him putting his hands up in the air like, like this, didn't want to listen. And I was instantly sacked. I was instantly sacked for making a disclosure that stuff was happening to me behind closed doors at home. I'd never had a day off. I'd never, my work was, you know, impeccable. I love my job. But his reaction, for whatever reason, probably he didn't understand the cycle himself. You know, he, he perhaps, I don't know. But I was instantly sacked. And I never opened up to anybody else after that because I thought if my boss, who sees me every day, I'm always early for work, you know, I always leave late. I do all my work. If that person who really knows me isn't even going to listen to me then there's absolutely no point me opening up to anybody else but as for my family my parents they absolutely knew what was happening they tried many times to encourage me to leave the relationship but by that time his control and his manipulation was far stronger than the love of my parents um, I've never actually said that out loud and that is a horrible thing to say but that is exactly what it was my love for him and his control and manipulation over me was stronger than my parents' love. I did go back quite a few times, but he'd always find me. He'd always promise to change. And then he'd always turn up to my parents. So again, it's that that guilt of, it's just easier if I go back. It's just safer for me and it's just easy for my parents. So there were people who knew, 
And there were many people, again, who tried to help me out of that relationship. But because I'd got no money, I got no, I hadn't got any money of my own. My appearance was just awful. There, there were days when I wouldn't have a wash. I wouldn't brush my teeth. I'd just sit there because I went into deep depression. I got down to about five stone. I wouldn't eat. I just wouldn't do anything because it was just easier. Because if I brush my teeth, if I brush my hair, who are you seeing? Where are you going? Why are you doing that? So sometimes it was just easy not to do anything. And that's really sad. That's really sad to say that because I was a bubbly, really outgoing, really jolly person before I met him. And I spoke to an old college friend the other day um, from when we were 16 and she said, you were always smiling. And she said, it's really, I find it really hard to believe that someone took, took that smile away from you. And that's exactly what happened. He took my smile away. He took everything away from me. So over the last 20 years, I've had to kind of slowly build back up. And the healing process and that journey has been really difficult. I've hit rock bottom more than once. In that situation, I took an overdose. I didn't want to live anymore. Again, I couldn't see a way out. And I just thought it'd be easy if I wasn't here. All those things that he said to me, I've always been in the back of my mind subconsciously, so I'd never buy myself a new dress. I'd never go clothes shopping, wouldn't look in the mirror, wouldn't put makeup on. I wouldn't do any of those things that I used to do before because he's been in my mind for a very long time. I think a lot of people think once you're out of that situation, oh, that's it. Life goes back to normal, how you were before. But it's really difficult when you put all your love and energy and time into a person and they've said the things that they've said to you. It's really hard to unpick and, and forget those things. I don't think I'll ever forget anything that he said, but I try and deal with my mindset differently. I try and put me at the forefront. Um, so, for example, I'll go for a walk every morning, half past five, three-mile walk. That's my some time. That's where I can be me. So little things like that are big things for somebody like me who has been extremely controlled. You talked about the moment you decided to leave this man. What what did you do and where did you get help from? Because I, I suspect that there are lots of women in the same predicament and we know there are lots of women and men um, of all ages and sizes and shapes and colours and creeds and whatever who are going through exactly the same experience that you've gone through. Um, you, you know, locked into this kind of pretense of, of love and, and care when in fact it's abuse and control of, of different extremes. But you made the decision. What, what is it that you learned at that moment that other people might be able to take away where they can feel empowered to, you know, escape all the chains that keep you locked in? And I'm talking about you what, reflecting on what you said in terms of not having any money, not having any willpower, you know, being sort of browbeaten to the point where you had lost all self-esteem, etc., by this individual who'd manipulated and controlled you. And we haven't even explored the impact that had on your child between the two of you, you know, not just as a child, but as they grew up. How did you break away, Sam? It's not as easy as people think to break away. Um, so it, it was on, um, the incident happened on a Friday evening. On the Saturday morning, I got my daughter, she was 10 months old. I put her in a pram. I told him I was going shopping. I said, oh, I'm going shopping. What do you need? And he, he gave me a list. And I went straight to my local police station. I was known to the police. 
not for bad behaviour, but for making statements against the perpetrator and always retracting them. That is a common thing that many people experiencing domestic abuse will do. So I was at rock bottom at this point. And I remember walking into the police station and this police officer just looking at me and he was like, oh, my God. And he said, are you going to do it? And are you going to you really going to do it this time? And I went, yeah, I said, I've got to. So they encouraged me. They encouraged me that I'd be safe, that I'd uh, that they'd support me. So I, I was high risk uh, when I was in that relationship, which meant that any phone call to the police from my mobile phone, there'd always be police presence at the house. So I made my statement and they encouraged me and suggested that I go uh, and get an injunction order out against him, which was put in place so that he wouldn't come anywhere near me, my property or my daughter. It happened really, really quickly. The same afternoon, I instructed a solicitor and I was absolutely petrified. I was shaking. It, it felt as though... It felt as though I was the one in the wrong. I'd done something really bad and I was being judged. I, I, I kind of felt that. And again, I think that's most probably because of his behaviour towards me made me feel that way. So during the relationship, he would say, no one's going to believe you. Police aren't going to believe you. You're a crap mom and, and, and you know, no one's going to believe you anyway. So with those words that have been said to you time and time again, they're really difficult to, to shift. But my solicitor was absolutely amazing. Um, she, she was really positive. But the only thing was that they didn't explain the process of an injunction order. I didn't know that somebody would knock on my front door and actually serve papers on him, which meant the papers had to physically touch my ex-partner. Well, I'm not allowed to open the front door. And the person who came to the house was male. So as, the, as somebody knocked on the front door, he looked out the window and he was shouting at me and swearing at me, saying who the effing hell was at the door. And I was like, I, I didn't know what to do because obviously now he thinks I'm having an affair with somebody. So I froze, didn't open the front door. And then I was beaten up and verbally abused because he thought I was having an affair with somebody. So that wasn't explained at the beginning, which was kind of frustrating because it prolonged the actual um, serving of the papers because he ran off. Uh, he obviously knew there was something going on. He ran off and it took them about three or four days to actually find him. The actual injunction itself, he broke it three times. He he turned up at the property. I didn't open the door, but he posted a card through the letterbox. And when I reported it to the police, they said, because she wasn't physically hurt, then he didn't really break the order. That there, There's this kind of minimisation sometimes because he didn't physically touch me. Sometimes professionals don't understand the actual, like you said, the actual impact of, of him doing that to me. I was absolutely petrified with, like, my daughter. After that, I didn't see him. He wouldn't come to the house, didn't see him. But there was always that fear of what's going to happen when I do bump into him. Uh, because we, our parents live quite close together. So, so we're obviously going to bump into each other. But then because the perpetrators do all they can to control he took me through the family court to for contact and parental responsibility um, of our daughter. And we, we got a, a mutually agreed arrangement in place before going to court because I still did want my daughter to have a father in her life. You know, she had done nothing wrong. Maybe he might change being a father. He didn't. This particular day, he never turned up. He didn't phone he didn't give an excuse and I actually saw him drinking in the high street with the next girlfriend of his um, then he came over to me and he was going oh but you know I love you the old all that that I'd heard many times before 
And I just said to him, if you want contact, we've got to do it properly. We'll go through family court and contact centre. So about six months later, I got a letter instructing me to go to court. And again, that was that was absolutely petrifying because he brainwashed me into believing that I was a crap mom. He brainwashed me into believing that social services were going to take my daughter off me and that he'd get custody straight away because he's got other children. So I'm shaking. I'm absolutely petrified. But it's a form of control again. He, he wasn't interested in seeing our daughter. He wanted to control me. So on several occasions, he'd bring his new girlfriend and he'd make her walk past me. So she'd go to the vending machine. And again, it was that intimidation, and that control. And he didn't turn up to half of the appointments. And in the end, the court actually threw his case out of court because they could obviously see that his best interests were not his daughter. So there's also that side of, of domestic abuse that not many people understand unless you're actually in it. So there's probably people out there listening who uh, are being taken through the family court as a form of, of control and manipulation. And then the actual support I got was very, very limited in the area that I live in. So I'm in the West Midlands and I had to, my, my, I'm smiling because it's just bizarre. So my support was an eight week awareness course of everything that I've been through. And the only reason I went on this course is because I was referred by social services. And I thought if I didn't, I would take my daughter away. So it's basically this eight week awareness course. And the only thing I can remember from that course was this one exercise where we had to talk about the things that we loved about our partner. And I just found that very bizarre. And then that made me doubt myself. But actually, I did love him. I did love him when I first met him. I was really frightened of him towards the end of the relationship. But now people are asking me what I loved about him. So there was that, I was questioning and doubting myself. Um, and then after the eight-week awareness course, there was absolutely no support whatsoever. There was no helpline number given to me. There was no, just nothing. Do you um, think those concerns have changed now because of the work that you do as part of the awareness program project campaign that you you have um and, and was it and this is no excuse for it but was it a kind of remnant of the time that you were going through this experience and because you went through this experience where you were not given the kind of a support that you should have been given that those things have changed or have they yeah absolutely i think things have changed from when I was in that situation, that there is definitely support out there. So we've got Mankind, we've got Women's Aid, there, there is definitely specialist support out there. But when you've just come out of existence, we don't know that. We, we need to be told these things because we haven't got the ability to go and find them ourselves. So I actually registered with a local Shore Start Centre and they were just absolutely amazing and they were the most powerful support that I got so I enrolled my daughter on all the mother and toddler groups and then I actually became a volunteer and I worked alongside a lovely woman called Sally and the one day she said to me she went have you thought about helping others and I was like no instantly I was like no no I said no I couldn't I could never do that now but the more I thought about it and I went home and I thought long and hard about it that was the one thing that I wanted and needed when I left the relationship so I assume there'd be lots of other people out there in that situation now so I always say I just want to be the support that I never had 
Um, and I've set up my own domestic abuse support group called SODA, which raises awareness and reduces that isolation. And how do you do that, Sam? How do you raise awareness and reduce that isolation, which were key elements to the abuse you went through? So it took me a while. I didn't do it straight after I left. It took about three, four years for me to actually think, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, it started off with an online support group, uh, which has got about 900 members worldwide in the group, men and women. And it's a safe haven for them to come together without judgment. So they can come and open up. They can tell us their story. They can tell us their journey. And they support each other because... They all understand each other. So that's still really active. I'm really active on social media and uh, in the media as well. I, I use my lived experience to raise awareness that way because I've never heard of, I know it sounds really lame, but I've never heard of domestic abuse. I didn't know what it was, didn't understand any of it until I'd experienced it. And I just want, I want to be a little, play a little part in somebody else not going through that. I like to raise awareness so people can identify these signs in their own, own relationship and a lot of people do do that I do get a lot of messages from men and women saying you know I saw your tweet or I read your blog and, and this is what happens to me um, and I've actually helped people leave their relationship people have heard me speaking people have heard my story and they found the courage to leave their relationship which is just amazing so for me my biggest passion is raising awareness because it's powerful I'm not telling somebody what to do. I'm not blaming anybody for being in that relationship. I'm just giving them information. So when they're ready and it's safe enough for them to leave that relationship, they can do so. And I also tweet and raise awareness about um, women's aid, refuge, mankind. And, I, you know, just something as simple as putting their telephone number up because I never had that. And I think if I did, I probably would have left a little bit sooner then I did. I just accepted it and, and thought it was normal. And Do you domestic know what? abuse is not. It's not normal. And uh, occasionally the, the mainstream media will, will run stories like your own, I suppose, you know, bring you on to talk about the issue when it's a, a topic of discussion. And I think what, what I find really frustrating um, but equally fascinating is this idea that women or men going through these abuses in, in their relationship, normalise it in the same way you do other kind of issues, where, as you said at the very beginning, you knew nothing about what domestic abuse was and you were going through this relationship, but you had nothing to compare compare your relationship with anybody else's. And although outsiders might make a judgment by saying, surely you know that when somebody strikes you with their hand, they're abusing you, or when somebody manipulates you in a a kind of psychological way that they're abusing you. But but I suppose people don't, do they? People won't recognise the signs depending on your environment, where you come from, what your life's been like, what your 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 classes, whatever it is, people don't it's not as as obvious to people as outsiders might think it is who have some insight or knowledge. That's that's what I'm trying to to make people understand from this conversation is that you can't just sit there and make a judgment and say, well, surely they just got out of the relationship or get out of the relationship, walk out the door. It's not as easy as that. Definitely not. Um, and I often get people say to me, oh, the, the first time my partner ever hits me, I'm leaving. And when you think about that, without thinking of domestic abuse, that is not likely going to happen because most relationships have an argument, a disagreement. That 
you know, everybody has that, but you don't instantly leave once you've had an argument. So in my situation, when he first slapped me, he, I was as shocked as he was because there was no, even though I was being controlled, I still didn't know what the control was. There was no indication that it, I was frightened of him or anything. So he, he pulled my collar, spun me around and slapped me. So I've gone back. Obviously, it's hurt because my eyes bruised straight away. But I'm shocked. And as I look at him, he looks just as shocked as I do. And then as I'm clutching my face, he starts to cry. I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't mean that. Oh, I didn't mean I feel so you know, I love you. I didn't mean to. So I'm confused because of what's just happened. But I'm also confused at his reaction because he's hit me for the first time and he's crying. And he obviously doesn't mean it because he's crying and he loves me. So it's not going to happen again. And it didn't. The, the violence wasn't as often as the controlling, but it's really difficult to identify the controlling behaviour. Obviously, if I met him and he punched me in the face the first night we met, obviously, I wouldn't have gone anywhere near him or I would never have seen him again. But when that first physical violence happened, it was pure shock. Oh, no, he's not going to hurt me again. It won't happen again. And it didn't for a long time. But because I was being controlled and I was wore down, I was walking on eggshells, I got no self-esteem. Again, that became a normal. So the, the physical violence, I could I could cope with easier. I could deal with it. You know, he broke my ribs, he strangled me, he gave me a black eye, he gave me beatings. Yes, they did hurt, but not as much as a coercive control and the controlling behaviour because... Those scars that are in my head have had a huge impact on my life the last 20 years, whereas I can't really remember the physical injuries and the physical side, but it's all the, the controlling side that I can remember. Wow, um, wow. That is that is incredible to, to think that the physical side of it, you, you know, bruises, they heal, you know, from the moment, um, even though sometimes you remember, but the psychological. Let's talk a bit about how you are today, Sam, because that's dominated your life and your existence. But, you, you know, you've got a daughter. I don't know how old she is now. But how have you been able to re... I mean, I know that you talked about a moment ago the campaign that you've set up and the support network that you've got going through the campaign that you run. But how, how was you able to and what do you do to rebuild your life. So there will be people listening to this who have just maybe broken free from a domestic or are going to break free as a result of kind of identifying some of the signs that you've indicated. But but how did you rebuild your life and where is your life at now? So I do get a lot of people ask me, how long will it be before I get over it? And I'll be really, really honest. We don't get over what's happened to us. We don't get over domestic abuse. We learn to live with it and we learn to change our mindset, which takes time. And our journey is individual and as unique as we are. There's no competition in how long it takes us to get to where we want to be. So for me, it's been about 20 years. I've thrown myself into soda, I've thrown myself into motherhood, and Sam has taken a back burner for a long time. I hit rock bottom a few months ago, uh, about 12 months ago, I hit rock bottom. I didn't want to be here anymore. I just thought my life was worthless, didn't, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't see a way of achieving the things that I wanted to achieve. And then within the last um, four or five months, I made a promise to myself that 
2023, the focus would be on Sam. The focus would be on me. So I do my self-care, which I've already said, I do my walking. Um, I've set up a WhatsApp group to help with my social life because my social life has been in non-existent for the last 20 years or so. So I've set up a WhatsApp group and there's about 20 of us, male and females, um, in the local area. And we went out for a meal a few weeks ago. We met up, we had a lovely meal, we had a drink and then I went to a pub after I had a little bit of a boogie. And I loved every second of it. There was nobody judging me. There was nobody. I didn't even get my phone out of my pocket to take a photo. I just lived in the moment that night. And it was absolutely amazing. I've never been on an aeroplane. I've never been abroad. Uh, but I've got a group of friends that hopefully I'll be going I'll be going on holiday with towards the end of the year. So it's kind of focusing on all the things that I've wanted to do. All the things that he said I couldn't do, and I'm just taking one day at a time to kind of put those plans back into place. But it's been a long, long journey. It's it's been horrific, really. But my, for me, I'm, I'm really lucky. My, my daughter, she's absolutely amazing. So she was ten months old when I left. Doesn't remember anything about her dad at all. He passed away about eight years ago. So she's never had any relationship whatsoever with her dad, which has been an interesting journey for me as Sam and as a mom. So as a mom, obviously, it's still my daughter's dad and, and quite rightly, she wanted to see him and quite rightly, she wanted to meet him. But unfortunately, that's not been able to happen. She's 18 in December and she is doing amazing. She's just studying her A-levels. Um, she's hitting all her targets. She amazes me every single day and she's the but, reason but that... that amazement is not... Not just her alone, isn't it? It's testimony to what you've been able to achieve in those 18 years because you've come out of a horrible situation and still been able to give your daughter all the positivity that you have to make her the daughter that no doubt she she, she is and you've just described. So there's a lot of credit that has to go to you, Sam, which I'm sure you shouldn't and you know overlook. But my question is... How have you been able to, you know, explain to your daughter? What did she think about, you know, the fact that you talk openly about the, the experiences that you you went through? You know, how have you reconciled that between the two of you? Because I'm sure that is difficult. Yeah, it has been really difficult. So I think she was around six, seven when when she first asked, where's my dad? which is the most natural question for any child to ask, who's my dad, where's my dad? But obviously the conversation we had when she was around six was very age appropriate. So the conversation sort of went like, well, I was with daddy for a few years, but daddy wasn't very nice to mom. And, and I felt at the time it was the best thing for me to leave. And then I explained a little bit about the court process and what happened. And I've got a huge folder with all the papers in. So when she got older, in her early teens, I, I basically gave her this folder with all the information and everything in. And I kind of said, any questions at all, ask. And I kind of tried to put myself in her position because it must be really difficult for her to... She knows about the work that I do. She's, she encourages the work that I do. She's just actually set up a website for, website for me, actually, to help me with the work that I do. But I've also got to be mindful of the person I'm talking about is actually her father. But as she's gotten older, she understands the decisions I made at the time, the right decisions to make for her. Um, I mean, I've never been in a relationship since. I've, I've never loved anybody. 
the way that I loved him and I, I did love him at the beginning. But she's just so resilient and she's learning, she's doing sociology, law and um, psychology. So she's learning to understand how minds work and she's learning to understand about certain people's behaviours. So sometimes she knows a lot more than I'll give her credit for and she's just really understanding. The one thing I've never done, I've never said a bad word about her dad at all. I've never, you know, I'm not one of those who has put her in a position to make her feel awful about anything. I've never done that. I've always been really open. I just find it really sad that I don't know the answers to her questions. So she wants to know what his favourite songs were, his favourite colours and think, you know, the normal things that anybody would want to know. And I don't have those answers because that wasn't the kind of relationship we were in. That wasn't the kind of relationship we had. Um, and then off the back of all that, the biggest emotion that I've come away with is guilt. So, you know, guilty, did I do the right thing? Should I have done that? Should I have said that? So that's the biggest kind of emotion. I started off with love and then now my journey has taken me on, on guilt. But I'm having counselling, um, recently having counselling to help, again, change my mindset and, and help me understand that it wasn't my fault. I wasn't to blame for what happened Maybe I was to blame for staying longer than I should have done. But the only thing I did wrong was, was fall in love with the wrong person. Which I suppose lots of men and, and women do. And it's sad to think that, you know, so many years later, there, there are ramifications. And I suppose, as you rightly said, you know, it affects different people in different ways and for different durations. But for those who might be listening to you, to you now who, who might feel scared not only of breaking out of a relationship, but the long-term consequences of suffering in an abusive, controlling relationship. It it must be terrifying. I mean, what would your positive message be to those men and women who who are in this situation, but are terrified of a number of different consequences of making what is probably the most positive decision they can make to, to break free? I think the biggest message I can give is it will never get better. No matter how many times they tell us they love us, they'll change, they won't do it again. It will always happen again. And the other thing is that there are people out there who understand and there are specialist services available to help us. I think we do talk about domestic abuse a lot more than we did when I was in that situation. And it's just about understanding that it's not your fault. That is the biggest thing. It's not your fault. So, for example, sometimes we're blamed, you know, it's our fault because of what we said, what we did, what we wore. And we believe that because we're told that constantly. But domestic abuse happens because perpetrators choose to abuse Nobody chooses to become a victim. And we have to remind ourselves of that sometimes because of that manipulation and that control. So it is a long journey and it can be a very, very difficult journey, but it is definitely a journey worth taking. And there definitely is life after abuse, which is something that I'm just learning now. And that brings me on to my final question, which is about second chance. You know, this podcast talks to people who have a second chance in life or a second chance of an experience or a second chance of something, whatever it means to them. Does the second chance play any role in, in your life, Sam? And, and what does second chance mean to you? I've got a second chance at living. I've got a second chance at life, something I didn't have 22, three years ago, something I didn't think I'd ever have again. Because when you're in such a dark place, you just can't see a way out. So second chance for me is a second chance at living. 
How can anybody who wants to find out more about the work that you're doing get in touch? You know, if there is somebody listening here who's terrified to, to take that step, but they think, having listened to you, that you're a person that they could reach out to, can they reach out to you through your website? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Whether you're male or female, whether you're in that relationship, out of that relationship, anyone can contact me. Uh, my website details are www.sodahq.uk. I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. And anybody can reach out to me, even if it's a, a family member who thinks their son or daughter's in an abusive relationship, please do reach out because Listening to somebody with lived experience can give them the reassurance that they need as well, not, not just a victim who's going through the domestic abuse. Sam, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your very powerful, sad, but also inspiring story, because it's always great to know that your lived experience, I wouldn't say has come to an end, but that you've embraced it. You've taken your story and you've turned it into your story rather than a story that other people talk about. You, you know, in some way, shape or form. And that and that's to be admired. So thank you for coming on, Sam. And good luck, not just for you, but also for your daughter. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Speak up and speak out. But I also urge you to find the strength and courage to get away from any situation where you feel you're being abused. If you are or you know someone suffering domestic abuse, there are many charitable organisations you can contact for confidential and non-judgmental advice and support, including SODA. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. You can find the video of this interview on our YouTube channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Please share our episodes with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platform for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is also crucial to the growth of our podcast, so please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. Our podcast is devoted to providing excellent content and we rely on several talented teams to bring it to life. Audio Avalanche handles audio editing. J-Row Productions creates original music. Studio Minerva designs our eye-catching cover. Sophie Warner manages our social media presence. Kabir Lotta and Lewis Hunt take care of our video editing. And Kim Collicott oversees episode production with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.